Hey there, theoryologists. Trying something new with this episode. Listener input is a key part of this show. And one of the things I hear most often is that while the content is great, sometimes it can sound a bit too much like a classroom lecture, and it can be hard to stick with it. You've spoken, and I'm listening. The goal of conspiracy theoryology is to explore new approaches to the topics discussed and do it in such a way that it's enjoyable and informative, like any good podcast would. To that goal, I pulled the narrator aside, we go way back, and told him to loosen up a bit and try to enjoy the conversation a bit more. So, if this episode sounds a bit less structured and organized than previous, that's because it is. Please continue to provide feedback. This is your show, and I want it to sound the way you want to listen. Let me know if this is preferable, or if the old flow sounded better to you. Maybe the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. Either way, we will get there with a little experimentation along the way. And now, let the theoryology begin. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, Spontaneous Human Combustion. What is this fiery phenomenon known as Spontaneous Human Combustion? Is it really unexplained? Or have researchers figured out the cause for these cases? And are we actually worried about bursting into flames spontaneously? Or does the phenomenon intrigue us for other reasons? This time, on Conspiracy Theoryology, we will ignite our interests and burn away the mystery surrounding the heated debate on our fascination with spontaneous human combustion. Howdy, theoryologists. Okay, so let's talk spontaneous human combustion, right? This phenomenon, also known as SHC, probably because it gets old saying the full term pretty quickly in a long conversation, goes back hundreds of years and still befuddles investigators in cases today. Yes, I said befuddled. This isn't really a tale of the supernatural, although it, it, it certainly it gives that vibe. It's it's certainly paranormal in the very literal sense of being out of the ordinary. The, the term is used in different ways. By investigators and coroners, it's used as a means to close a case and ascribe a lack of explanation as the conclusion itself, right? By observe, uh, survivors and observers of this, it's used as a means of giving cause to an otherwise unexplainable loss. And of course, by storytellers, it's used as a means of warning against behaviors and lifestyles that can lead to such a dangerous outcome. Ultimately, it's a phenomenon that captures our imagination because spontaneous human combustion hits on so many elements of fear and expectations. Now, I know some of our episodes can feel a bit classroom lectury simply because of the amount of data we try to look into but this discussion should be a bit different the the best way to talk about shc is to hear the stories and think about their elements only after you get a feel for the stories can we look into some possible psychological 
bases for our fascination. So with that, let's get into it with our first examples of spontaneous human combustion. Now here's a short list I, I found um, through a site called Science Rumors, and I think it gives a pretty good variety crossing multiple centuries on these cases. The first is is the a case from December of 1966 with the death of a uh, Pennsylvania-based physician named uh, John Irving Bentley. It's actually a, a pretty good case of it. This This physician was found turned to ash with just the lower leg and a slipper escaping from getting completely burnt. 90% of his body had burned, reasons to which were not known by anybody. His house wasn't on fire, and his pipe was kept far away from his bed. Another instance was that of the Countess Cornelia de Brandi, uh, when worried maids broke into a room on the morning of 1731 to discover that the Countess was lying dead. She was a victim of SHC with her whole body burnt to ashes. The only exceptions were three of her fingers, her lower leg, and a little bit of her head. And of course, nothing else was in the room was burnt. The candles had lost the wax with just the wick standing as though the wax had melted away from some sort of ambient heat. But it also pointed to the fact that they were not the source of the fire. And a third case was that of uh, a salesman named Jack Angel of Savannah, Georgia, who woke up in the morning to find his arm and back covered in burns. He'd also developed a, a burn hole in his chest. The clothes that he were wearing uh, were intact, and the um, per the doctors, the fire had originated from his left arm op- only. Now, this took place back in 1974. Now, there's a few more stories, and we'll get into those. Uh, but uh, first, oh, let's jump into defining this. You know, we're hearing stories of this, and if you're listening to this episode, chances are you've heard of spontaneous human combustion, but maybe not, at least not in any sort of in-depth uh, definition of it. So let's jump to Wikipedia first and cover that. Right, that's that's where we want to look first. Spontaneous human combustion. It's a term for the concept of the combustion of a living or recently deceased human body without an apparent external source of ignition. And in addition to reported cases, descriptions of the alleged phenomenon can appear in literature, and both types have been observed to share common characteristics in terms of circumstances and the remains of the victim. Okay. Pretty simple, right? It's when an entire body has has combusted and they can't figure out where it started. Well, you know, that that, that covers it pretty well. Uh, really this uh this phenomenon got it kind of got its its kickoff back in the uh, uh seventeen and eighteen hundreds. Um but but there are cases that go back uh, up to the uh, to the mid 1600s, really, and and uh, well, even even farther back. Although I wouldn't call them cases. I mean, if we're talking about stories, these are these are stories that were told of people going up in fire in some form or another. But of course, they have more of a feel of of, of folklore and 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 stories of warning stories of yore, but they have been collected and they do sound an awful lot like it. So, with that, I mean, the question then becomes how <laughs> how probable is spontaneous human combustion? Okay, even with all that I found, even with everything we were looking at, the lists of stories, well, the number is between about 150 to 200 cases ever reported or recorded. And you only get up to that 200 if you include all those cases of uh, of someone dying a fiery death in the 15th and 16th centuries. So it's not a lot. 
it's actually a, uh, a highly improbable scenario, uh, regardless of cause, regardless of of the reality of of its cause, its origination, and what exactly has happened. If we look at spontaneous human combustion as that phenomenon of finding a body completely burned or nearly burned with very little remaining and also very little damage compared to what would be expected uh, being found at the scene. Um, so, you know, that's that's spontaneous human combustion. But before we dive into it more and before we look at some of the possible theories and explanations, well, I think it would be I think it would be better to look at some of some more story examples, right? In fact, why don't we jump off as far as understanding history with pretty much the earliest case that has been found and ascribed to spontaneous human combustion. The first reported case of this, it dates back all the way to the 15th century, and it tells of a a knight, an Italian knight, or perhaps a Polish knight, uh, depending on the description, uh, the translation of the Latin, uh, that after drinking two ladles of wine, he started vomiting fire and gradually got burned to death. After that, we have other cases of uh, uh, an Englishwoman uh, burning, and uh, this was in the 17th century. It was an elderly woman who was found burned to death in her cottage in southeastern England. Other than the woman, nothing else in the cottage was damaged. Not even the bedclothes, the, the sheets, right? Not even the, 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 the sheets on the bed uh, were, were burned, maybe perhaps a bit singed. In that story, uh, of course, an observer was quoted as saying, no man knoweth what this doth portend, <laughs> which suggested some sort of divine retribution for her sins. Uh, an additional story. Let's jump to the, uh, how about we jump to the 1700s? And this is the story of Mrs. Millet's fiery death from 1725. It claimed that on February 20th of that year, in France, uh, Mrs. Nicole Millet was found burned to death in an unburned chair. She was the wife of Jean Millet, uh, and the the landlord of an inn called the uh, Leon d'Or. Uh, and perhaps it's Millet, I'm not sure. This is French. But uh, Jean uh, Millet was arrested and accused of murdering his wife and burning the corpse, presumably to cavort with a uh, young girl who worked with him. He was acquitted when a young surgeon convinced the court that the death of Nicole was actually a fine example of spontaneous human combustion, which was this proposed situation in which the human body ignites itself and is consumed by fire from the inside. So, the final verdict in that case was that Nicole had died by a visitation from God. Let's jump to 1802. On March 16th of 1802, in a town in the state of Massachusetts, an elderly woman was discovered dead by means of a strange fire. Some of the family of the household had gone to bed and some were out. The elderly woman remained awake to take care of the household. She was alone for about one and a half hours before one of her grandchildren came home and they discovered that the floor near the hearth was on fire. An alarm was called out and the family made efforts to extinguish the fire. Once it was out or under control, the full measure of what they were looking at had hit them. There was this greasy soot and ashes interspersed with human remains on the hearth and the floor next to it, and a strange smell in the air. None of the grandmother's clothes were left. It was at first supposed that the woman had fallen into the fire of the hearth while attempting to light her pipe and had been burned to death. But the fire in the hearth was so small and the destruction of her body so complete in so short a time that it was assumed to be another case of spontaneous human combustion. First, I want to give give credit that uh, there's this wonderful list, and you can find it in the show notes, 
of all of these stories, which is why I'm kind of bouncing around, um, that uh, was that were compiled. I mean, I think every case that I came across on multiple sites is actually beautifully compiled on uh, anomalyinfo.com, and it's it's an excellent list of all of these. I mean, I could just sit here and bounce one after the other after the other, and we'll probably b- bounce to a few more um, and and read and read them because they're just they're just fascinating. But you know, there's there's some consistency in these stories. This is a case of of someone being found after some time alone, uh, and uh, either an extended period of time or rather short time, and being found in some level of of incineration, right? Some level of cremation, actually, where the entire body. Uh, with the exception of perhaps appendages uh, or digits, the most out you know, outlying extremities of the body are left. Everything else is burned with and down to bone being charred. With and I should and I should emphasize there again, with very limited damage to the surrounding space. Now. There's a lot to that. There's a lot to this, but let's let's jump into some of these some of these theories, right? In explaining it, and then after we do that, let's talk about cremation itself, because I think that has to be understood to understand what's happening to these bodies. Now there are several theories that have explained this over time. Alcoholism is a good one. That's uh, that was a very prominent understanding when these cases were first being explored in the 18th century and into the 19th century. And it was the idea of a heavy amount of alcoholic of alcohol consumption led to either a, a high amount of alcohol in the blood or a saturation of the body that would then ignite uh, the cause of the ignition. Of course, everything from the the, the spiritual and supernatural to uh, the paranormal. I uh, came across an example of, of uh, or an argument for poltergeist activity. Uh, but even in those cases where perhaps something may have ignited it, either heat, uh, some sort of heat or external heat source or the lighting of a, of a pipe, uh, the idea was that the alcohol ignited and burned the body. Then another explanation given uh it's it's pretty wild one it's called the uh the pyrotron particle and of course the pyrotron particle that that there was some sort of effectively new quantum particle that could pop into existence and reacted violently with the body that would cause ignition and burn the body igniting the the uh the fat the oils whatever it is. Um, another explanation, ball lightning. Now, this is based on very real, uh, real situations, circumstances, and experiences with ball lightning. People have witnessed this, and in those environments, it was uh, you know, it caused the sensation of burning, of tingling in the skin, uh, even of affecting the nervous system, a feeling of immobility. Actually, a, a threat of, of of death, of losing losing one's life. So, obviously, if you've got this instance of of ball lightning and you have the right situation where it approaches close enough and uh, the person is in a physical state that of, that could be combustible, that the ball lightning would it would ignite. There is a more recent uh, and really. Honestly, it sounds really plausible explanation, and that's of acetone. Now, what do I mean by that? So, acetone is is a highly combustible liquid. Well, this is this I say this is current. It's current because of actually modern popularity of things like um, uh, various diets, right, or or lots of fitness uh, re- regimens that actually cause your body to get into a state of ketosis. 
And prior to ketosis, you jump into uh, acidosis, which actually produces acetone, a higher concentration of acetone in your body. Uh, this can, it, it's also attributed to uh, situations where people have type 2 diabetes. Your body just naturally becomes, uh, uh, I guess, more acidic. Uh, you have this, this development of acetone in the system. Uh, with that, the argument is that whether it be an internal combustion source, right, some sort of heat mechanism in the body, something in which the acetone could ignite from within, or an external source, the acetone is ignited and it takes the whole body up with it. Now, in pretty much all of these cases, they uh, and this is this is how if you've watched this on TV, you've seen YouTube videos, you've watched MythBusters, you've watched any number of shows, or read anything about spontaneous combustion, they all bring up something called the Wick effect, right? The Wick effect is is just that. It's exactly how it sounds. Think of a candle burning when you light the Wick. The wax, as it heats and melts, is pulled up through the wick and burns at the top, which is why the wick burns so slowly down, heating the uh, candle uh, below it and causing it to slowly just melt away. And that's why you don't have a, a candle that just, it's not the wax burning all by itself. You don't have one giant flame and you don't have the wick burning it a hole down through the an untouched candle. It works wonderfully. The wick effect, when applied to spontaneous human combustion as an explanation, uh, is just that the wick becomes the clothing or fabric, a house coat, a bed sheet, a blanket, something wrapped around uh, the person's body, perhaps something like wool, something that burns very well. And investigators will attribute it to an external source, and those that believe that it is something a bit more paranormal will believe that the heat from the body, that if it ignites, uh, this this wick effect can actually add to it, right? The fats from the individual uh, begin to liquefy. They wick through the the clothing and it burns. And it causes a nice, slow, steady burn, effectively making the body burn away like a candle. I don't know about that theory. I mean, honestly, people have done tests and examples. And again, you can find videos left and right about the wick effect. They love, everybody loves to try to burn a pig to the ground, <laughs> a, a pig carcass to the ground, right? They'll wrap it in all sorts of things, flammable material soaked uh, linens and cloths and burlap and and dry sheets and whatever the case may be and they wrap it up and it makes for good good television that they they ignite the thing and it burns away and the and the pig seems to melt away and uh you know if if they are in the mood to they let the thing burn for hours and hours and hours sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't uh but the interesting thing about that is is of course that circumstance does not it's it's not a a one to one comparison with these stories that we've been reading right where people are at home lying in bed doing something instead we're talking about a an already long dead pig cadaver that is wrapped in a in a uniform fashion of some sort as opposed to the many varied states here it also does not uh, explain things such as the fire that comes out of somebody's mouth, right? The flame shooting out or uh, the case of partial burns, as we heard earlier, right? Where a survivor actually had a, a, a portion of his body burned. Uh, why do some cases have leave a body with third degree burns across it in which the victim died in the hospital as opposed to other cases where people uh, were nothing but ash and gre greasy soot. Well, the problem with the wick effect is while it may explain how it could happen in ideal circumstances, it, it really doesn't explain how you actually get a body 
burn completely down. To do that, let's talk about cremation. Cremation and and, and I guess I should say there's a there's a, a wide variety of assumptions. I mean I came across a an article on the sun that, you know, it, it's as a fact it mentioned that it requires uh three thousand degrees uh, Fahrenheit for a body to be fully cremated. But that is not the case. Cremation of a dead body is is carried out at a temperature range between 1,400 to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, Now that heat will reduce the body to its basic elements and some bone fragments. That's in an ideal scenario. Of course, cremation, as I'm talking about, takes place in a, in a, ch- a chamber, right, at a crematory. But... Uh, you could you could have this instance really in any case. If you could get that sort of heat concentrated, it would burn down. Meaning, in those instances where people have, have burned, the that area, the body, has reached a temperature of up to 1,800 degrees. 1,800 degrees. Now, I don't know if y'all, how many of y'all have been around an incinerator that gets that hot that can just completely carbonize everything that's tossed in it. Those get hot. It's hot. <laughs> and and, and um, actually, some of y'all that, that uh, perhaps have worked overseas and stuff have seen those, those uh, um, big incinerators that might be, that are used for waste and, and, uh, or, hey, if any of y'all have actually worked at a, a crematorium, and have some stories and explanations exactly on how that works. I would love to hear it. You know, touch base with me. But really, during during that incineration, the body is explo- exposed to columns of flames that are produced by a furnace fueled by a number of things. It could be natural gas, oils, propane, etc. Now, the corpse is placed in a casket um, or a container of some sort. Prepared with this combustible material, and the container burns down. Uh, then the heat dries the body. It burns away the skin and hair, um, contracts and chars the muscles, vaporizes the soft tissue, calcifies the bones, so that eventually they will crumble away. The gases that are released during the process are discharged. Um, in the case of a crematory uh, process, through an exhaust system. I suppose in a home they would exi- they would just uh, slowly dissipate, you know, throughout throughout the house, uh, which would explain the odors that uh, are sometimes uh, reported in these cases. Here's the here's the other important thing with this because we don't have to delve into the rest of the cremation process. And I'm sorry, I had to I got a little gruesome with that. I tried to just skim over it. Um, it's a process, right? But the key here is that that process can take between one to three hours in an ideal scenario. In an ideal situation, which is in this case a controlled situation, in at a crematorium, in a, in a crematory, uh, and what was that called? Oh, in the cremation chamber that's known as a retort, okay, with jets of fire that are shot out in a controlled temperature um, you know, at a controlled pace, one to three hours to reduce human remains down to ash. Now it's 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 a bit strange, it's a bit odd when you have these cases that are reported of minimal amounts of time, right? An hour, hour and a half. Uh it seems like not enough time. Uh well let's hear. But why don't we jump into some more examples? I mean, as we're now, we've talked about some of these explanations and theories, and again, most of those are couched in terms of simply a skeptical dismissal of the cases, which is why I'm not jumping into them full bore because we're not here to debate honestly the the reality of spontaneous human combustion. Um, so, before we jump into our theoryology, before we explore why it's so fascinating for us. Uh, let's look. Let's look at some more stories. Okay, this is with a Florida woman named Mary Reeser. She was 67, and her remains were discovered charred to death 
she was discovered by her landlady in 1951. Now, in this case, and again, remember we've just talked about cremation, her skull had shrunk to the size of a teacup because the heat makes the bodies shrink, right? Lose all of their moisture. Uh, her left foot and her backbone were left, but everything else was turned to ash. Now, again, surprisingly, nothing had burned inside the room. Not even a pile of newspaper that was stacked nearby. Now, this says that the temperature had shot up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't jump in to find out how they would have confirmed that, or if that's an assumption based on, uh, uh, you know, a, a faulty understanding of, of the temperature required for cremation. But if they assume that, that because she was reduced to ash, that they reached uh, cremation temperatures, we're not looking at 3,000 degrees, we're looking at 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit, which is still really hot and makes it hard to believe that nothing else in the room uh, was that burnt. Let's, uh, here, let me jump to uh, a couple more cases. There was a uh, <laughs> fireman, George Mott, uh, from New York. While watching an episode of The Twilight Zone, had commented to his friend, he said, why something like this doesn't just happen to His wishes got heard and he was found burned to death in his room while he was watching The Twilight Zone. Nothing but a shrunken skull and one rib were left and the whole body had burnt. As in the other cases, right, everything else in the room was, was untouched and intact. Now, before we finish all of the stories, I, I think, uh, or maybe in order to finish the stories... Really, one of the best is the story of Michael Faraday. This was a 76-year-old uh, man. This story occurred, and it's probably one of the most recent cases. It occurred back in December of 2010, at least based on the report I'm reading. He burned to death in his home in a blaze that firefighters said had no cause, and, and it was restricted to his body and the area immediately surrounding it. Within about six months into the investigation, the coroner finally ruled that Faraday died of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, the coroner actually determined that is the cause. Really, this was a, this was a big case because they think it was the first case of, of spontaneous human combustion really in Ireland. There was no accelerants. Uh, there was no suggestion of foul play, and the fire in the fireplace near where Faraday died was not the cause of the fire that killed him. Okay, so here, let's look into some of these details as, as we keep working through this story. A neighbor had called for help around 3 a.m. upon hearing the fire alarm. Faraday was found lying on his back. His body was completely burned, uh, but only the floor beneath him and the ceiling above him sustained fire damage, which gave the impression that, uh, that there were flames that were shooting up from his body enough to affect the ceiling above and, of course, the heat directly below where his body was contacting. The rest of the house was only damaged by smoke, and pathologists uh, say that the cause of death could not be determined due to the extensive damage to his organs. Faraday was found close to a fireplace, which, of course, many of the experts attribute that to be the cause. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't unquestionably or irrefutably explained as the, as the means of, of combustion. These stories continue to, to pull that thread through of bodies being found. And, and, and it's, it's fascinating. I don't know. I could keep working through stories and, and, and maybe not. I thought it'd be fun to kind of work through some of these, but it's just the same story over and over and over again, which, again, almost has the feel of urban legend to it. If these weren't actual documented cases, you might think it was just a retelling. But let's jump into the theoryology, right? Let's look at why these fascinate us. Because it's not so much the cause, it's not so much the the reality of what has happened. It's it's really a matter of of 
how it affects us, how these stories sound to us, and a little bit of how these stories are the reality of of the probability. So first, to do that, let's look at fears. Let's break down these cases. We've read several cases. We could read a hundred more, but they all have key elements. Now, I just jumped in and grabbed a few that it really touched on. When you think of a case of spontaneous human combustion, you have a situation where a person is alone in almost all of the cases, alone for some period of time, then bursting into flame and burning to death with a massive amount of heat that is able to reduce the body to ash, to cremate the remains. And in almost all of the cases, the people are in some level of, oh, weakened health, right? In many of the cases, they are either overweight or they are elderly or they are sick in some corner, in some sort of condition. In many of the cases, they're reported as, uh, if not alcoholic, then heavily consuming alcohol, imbibing quite frequently, and being known for it. And then, of course, with spontaneous human combustion, you have the idea of an unknown source. Okay, those elements. What if we got autophobia, the fear of being alone, pyrophobia, the fear of fire, thermophobia, fear of heat, nosophobia, a fear of illness, and finally xenophobia, a fear of the unknown. Now, I know xenophobia is is more often related to the fear of foreign persons or foreign bodies, but it simply translates as a fear of the unknown. Look at that. Just the stories alone, even if you're not thinking about it, spontaneous human combustion hits on all cylinders with something that can scare us. I mean, it's a goal of, of every horror movie out there to try and grab as many different scare buttons that they can find to really hit the audience. Spontaneous human combustion does it uh, in its sleep. I mean, without any effort. It hits everything. And if you have those, those even if you don't have a, an extreme clinical case of a phobia, an irrational fear of being alone or of dying by fire. These are pretty prevalent uh, fears or thoughts or concerns that make spontaneous human combustion uh, an impactful phenomenon. But why does it really fascinate us with this? It's not just because it's, it's, it hits on all cylinders with fears because not everybody has all those fears. Well, really to jump into it, now we finally get into some of that psychology. So step back, let's think about all the stories, and then let me introduce you to some terms. What I came across, and there was a lot of things, and of course I chased a lot of rabbit holes, but really predominantly what what pulled me in as something that that seemed most reasonable and applicable when thinking about spontaneous human combustion and thinking about how those, uh, how these stories contain so many fear elements in them. Well, it it leads to what's called catastrophic thinking, uh, which is also known as, as cognitive distortion. Okay. So what is catastrophic thinking? I mean, it already sounds, it is what it sounds like. You know, where your mind gets into a state of just thinking about catastrophe, right? Okay, so how often does does negative thought spiral into imminent disaster? How often does something that seems so, I don't know, innocuous, so explainable, uh, become this just absolutely impending catastrophe in your mind? It almost sounds silly to think that we jump into this idea of uh, catastrophic thinking, but... Before we know it, the situations we're in and that we're concerned about, they really do become these poof, 
full-blown cases of worst-case scenario. Another key aspect with catastrophic thinking is that it's almost problematic because it can actually trigger outcomes that we're trying to prevent. Now, let's think about it in another way. Think about catastrophic thinking in parallel to something else called cognitive distortions. And again, that's another uh, psychological term that that is is just used in to refer to thoughts that occur when our mind convinces us of something that is not true. It convinces us a truth of something that isn't. Okay? And almost always these these distortions reinforce negative thoughts and emotions. Okay? In in many cases this is used to explain and discuss and address things like depression, anxiety, mental illness. But at a lesser scale this can this can impact our interest and fascination with something as tragic like the phenomenon of SHC. Let's think of it in terms of of its prevalence. Because you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have catastrophic thinking, right? I don't have cognitive distortion about that. I'm not walking around anxious or depressed. I just I just find these spontaneous human combustion stories fascinating or or interesting or maybe ridiculous or over the top. But <laughs> when you think about these stories, if you give it give it any credence or credit at all, that that they are unexplained, that these aren't just underreported cases of something catching on fire because of a of a, a stove or a fireplace or or a, a lighter that somehow ignited. It's because of how we think catastrophic thinking is fed by what's known as negative mental chatter. Okay? Your subconscious, it's actually a lot more negative than you realize. See, when people are asked questions publicly, you know, how likely is it that you're going to retire with, with plenty of money? Or, you know, what are the chances that you're going to have a heart attack before other people around you, your colleagues or family members? People actually answer those questions very positively. And it's something known as the Pollyanna principle uh, or positivity bias. I mean, actually, people believe they have a very bright futures, usually brighter than other people around them. They've got better health. They've got more money. Their their kids are better behaved. Their relationship is better, et cetera, et cetera. And this positive, positivity bias actually extends beyond just optimism, and it, it goes into your personality. But <laughs> it is actually something that that reveals what is known as this illusion of control. See, people like to believe that they wield greater control over their outcomes than they actually do. You could think of it in terms of, of playing the lottery, right? When people actually choose their lottery tickets uh, versus uh, people that might be given a lottery ticket. If they have chosen their lottery ticket in... Uh, a study about that, they were actually less likely to want to give up their lottery ticket in, ter- in exchange for some sort of prize. Why? Because they had made a decision and this somehow, this act of choosing their own ticket gave them power to beat the odds, the objective odds, even though they had a no greater chance of, of winning than the person who was handed a free lottery ticket. Well, here's the kicker. Even though people claim to hold themselves in high regard, these there's actually thoughts that spontaneously occur to them. <laughs> and it's no surprise that it's as spontaneous as, you know, a fire bursting out. This mental chatter is shown to be upwards of 70% negative. It's actually a, a phenomenon referred to as negativity dominance this this negativity dominance suggests that there's a it's a disconnect about how behind, between how people respond to questions and how well they're doing relative to their peers um, and how rosy their future is and all of that stuff and 
how things, you know, the the amount of control that they actually feel deep down in their subconscious about their life. See, deep down, it turns out that we're much more self-critical, we're much more pessimistic, and we're much more fearful than we let out in our conscious thought. You know, what does that mean? Honestly, there's a very long list of stuff, and I came across a very complicated, well-written, but but descriptive document that, that uses this to explain uh, what we look at. And it's this idea of overweighting of small probabilities. Because this mental chatter is negative, and we have this, this aspect of positivity and possibility, we tend to believe deep down subconsciously that bad things can happen, and actually that they will happen. But outwardly, we're trying to find this, this positive spin on things. Well, because of that, we actually tend to lean towards uh, dismissing the low probabilities of things as an explanation or as a reason to, to dismiss them. We dismiss the probability rather than the occurrence. Because of that, we overweight what can happen. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of spontaneous human combustion? Let's go back to what I talked about with the cases. 150 to 200 cases ever reported. And most of them were old stories collected from the, uh, or a big chunk, I should say, were collected in the uh, 15th and 16th century or 17th centuries. And then later on, a stack in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Well... I don't even know how to calculate the probability of that. It's so low. It's so low as to be pretty much impossible. It's enough that people have a hard time believing that spontaneous human combustion is an actual phenomenon and not simply a a poorly explained or poorly diagnosed combination of unfortunate events. I mean, and what does that mean? When I'm saying it's a low probability, well, spontaneous human combustion is actually down there with getting hit by a meteor, right? And getting hit by a meteor, I was actually able to find uh, possibility statistics on that. It's somewhere in the range of 1 in 10 billion, okay? Uh, Oh, getting eaten by a shark. Well, that's a 1 in 4 million chance assuming you're in the water. <laughs> it's a 0% chance if you never go to the beach. Uh, I, I mean, you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning, dying in a plane crash, being in a terrorist attack, getting caught on a collapsing bridge. Uh, I mean, it just... We could go through this list of, of absurd cases of highly improbable uh, events um, and these things, these are things that we all worry about. And yet, if someone wants to worry about uh, spontaneous human combustion, it's it's laughed away. But the truth is, we do this, right? The, the, this, there's a psychological impact of low probability and rare event uh, occurrences. And it's typically this very large expectation of it to occur relative to that event's likelihood. It's explained, this overweighting is explained as a two-stage process, is how I can find. First, rare events tend to be overestimated because of this this availability heuristic, this anchoring of they call ignorance prior. And it, it amounts to not knowing, not having previous experience or understanding of it before. It's simply an unknown, and it becomes heavily overestimated that, well, I don't know what can cause it, therefore I don't know what can prevent it, and makes it more likely. Second, when making decisions regarding this low probability events are overweighted because of this possibility effect, right? We're more sensitive to probability changes close to, to zero than probabilities that are away from zero, meaning just be if we look at something that says that it is almost a 0% chance that it's going to happen, you know, a point zero 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 something percent chance of it happening. Well, (laughs) 
that leads into uh, the sort of sayings that that are so prevalent. Because if you don't think people think that way, well, how many times have you ever heard, it'd be just my luck? Or, if it happens to anybody, it'll happen to me. Or, one of my favorites, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Okay? These are sayings, these are expressions people have because this is a very real thing. It's something that you see, uh, you know, more seriously with terrorist attacks that have occurred. Because they have occurred, even though a very small likelihood, uh, there's that that very real fear that people have that it's going to happen to them. And you could have you, you could delve into all sorts of arguments and and reasons, psychological reasons why uh, that's probably a good thing, you know, situational awareness and all of that stuff. Uh, but you know, we want to keep this in the, in in the context of spontaneous human combustion. What really is that telling us? Really trying to drive home? It's just that fear can make you believe that the worst is going to happen, however unlikely and no, ever improbable. Okay. There's one more concept to introduce to really drive that point home. And that's uh, a term known as psychic equivalence. Now, psychic equivalence is really simply uh, the situation in which uh, imagination and experience are, uh, or I should say imagination and perception are experienced the exact same way. Okay. In a article by uh, on I found on Psychology Today by uh, Tom Bunn, he goes on to explain this. What what it'd be like to to live in a world in which everything that you imagine came true. And then he says, look, actually, we all we all lived in that world once. Until we were around the age of three, we as children experience uh, imagination as though it were real, and and he says that's that's this state of psychic equivalence, imagination and perception experienced as if they were the same. Now this was this was a pretty good example, and I think this conveys it well. So I wanted to I wanted to use this. Think of a four year old and a two year old playing together. The older child says, "Let's pretend we're in the jungle and there are lions and tigers, and they're going to try and catch us and eat us." Look, there's one. He's after us. Run, right? That's the four year old. To pretend that a child must be aware enough of his mental processes to sense a difference between what he imagined and what he perceives, right? That he's aware of making them up. And then, so the the four-year-old, the older child, he knows that the predators aren't real. He's imagining, he's playing. The younger child, the two-year-old, also has to make up the animals, but not yet aware of his mental processes, the lions and the tigers in his mind are as threatening as the real predators and terrified he runs to his mother to save his life. Now, if you've ever witnessed that with children playing, um, you might not be able to remember instances, but if you've ever played with a young child or watched your own children playing, you can see that this has actually happened. And that's where that two-year-old simply brought to life lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. He goes on to discuss that healthy executive function deals with probability, basically to estimate the outcome of something, of a course of action. This executive function must produce an internal mental representation of the external physical environment, in, you know, together with risks and rewards, right? And in addition to navigating that environment, uh, to deal with the situation, we have to generate this workable internal representation of what's in our mind. So in psychic equivalence, as the mind shifts from perception to imagination, it doesn't produce an accurate representation of the environment. Basically, we'd, we'd stop experience what's in the mind as a representation. We instead mistakenly experience this distorted mental representation as the physical environment. What do I mean by that? Again, in the context of spontaneous human combustion. Now imagine, imagine what it would be like to suddenly ignite, to combust, 
spontaneously on fire. Now imagine that very thought of that happening, that that process of imagining that occurring, being a very real experience, causing tremendous amounts of fear and panic in you. And again, if you are susceptible to this psychic equivalence, if you do have other strong phobias, um, that will compound and it becomes a very real instance. Then it doesn't matter what causes the the combustion. It doesn't matter what the uh, uh, you know flammable element is within your body. It doesn't matter if ball lightning is materializing. You are simply burning to death and you're terrified of it. Now, I bring that this up, obviously. This isn't, we're not all walking around in this psychic equivalent state. And that, that's not why we find spontaneous human combustion fascinating. But that is certainly an explanation to why some people do gravitate towards looking at this and worrying so much about this situation. What really drives it home is 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 that catastrophic thinking. I mean, that's what captures our imagination is that even though we sit down and look at these stories and think, eh, there's probably a reason. They they were old, they were sickly, they're producing acetone, or they just they're heavy drinkers and, and they fell asleep on a couch or they fell asleep in bed or they fell asleep in a chair or they had a heart attack and died and fell into the fire or they were lighting a cigarette and fell asleep and it burned them down and somehow their t-shirt nightshirt nightgown uh blanket bed sheet caught on fire and that managed to heat up to 1800 degrees and and melt the fat off their body and then all of a sudden they're a human candle and they burn away and uh the observers you know that that find them falsely think that that they don't they don't really process the amount of time that has gone by thinking that oh i just saw this person and it's really been this long but it it's actually been a considerable amount of time enough for the whole body to burn away whew that is quite a process just to dismiss this whole thing when in reality the back of our minds are going you know what I'm not in the best shape I've ever been. I'm not that healthy. Wow, do I have, you know, how close am I to to possibly type 2 diabetes? Or wow, you know, it do do I I don't eat healthy am I am I in that uh ketogenic state without any, you know, without the actual healthy uh, uh, fitness regimen or something behind it? Have I just developed some sort of high levels of acetone? Am I breathing acetone out? Can I breathe fire? Oh, wow, I smoke. Oh, wow, I drink. Oh, wow, I am, you know, I don't sleep well. I don't wake up well. I'm alone a lot. That's really what's going on in the back of our heads. Spontaneous human combustion, man, it, it just, again, it fires on all cylinders. It hits us where it hurts. It makes our subconscious go crazy. And we might outwardly try to dismiss these cases. We might laugh them off. But deep down, we're thinking, wow, what if? And <laughs> it would be just my luck. So, I mean, that's the truth. SHC has never really been supernatural. The stories we talked about, even the earliest cases, I mean, they were attributed to poor living, bad health, alcoholism. As we talked about, current explanations involve poor health and diet, even just absent-mindedness. But in truth, spontaneous human combustion is most likely a rare but real phenomenon. It can occur maybe in only the most perfectly aligned conflagration of conditions. But in contrast, our fascination, it's, it's simple. We tend toward entropy. We anticipate the worst. Our own inner monologue feeds the flames that cause us to expect the improbable. In effect, SHC does occur. It exists because we think it can exist. I mean, and, and we start the fire in our minds long before we go up and smoke. You know, this does make me curious. 
as we end. In all those examples we discussed and the many others that can be found, do you think those poor victims at the moment of combustion thought to themselves, this is just my luck. I knew this would happen to me. Okay, that is all for today. Thanks again for joining me as we jumped into the fire of spontaneous human combustion. Please click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussions. Connect with me with uh, uh, via email, right? Contact at conspiracytheoryology.com. Hey, joining me over at the uh, Facebook discussion group. We're trying to grow that so that we can have a lot of talks about the, everything that we explore on the show. You can always find me on Twitter at TheoryologyPod. Or, as always, I like to ask, just recommend the show to others. That's the best way to, to help the show grow in exposure. Of course, all the info can be found at the website, ConspiracyTheoryology.com, including how to support the podcast on Patreon. Music, as always, is by Adam Henry Garcia, which you can find at adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, I'll see you again next time, when we will tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. So until then, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theory of it.